Let me um, open the floor for questions. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm sorry, I'm a little bit without words. I'm, I need some well, processing time. Okay, yes. Uh, could we give Pluto Pag a round of applause, please? And Bonnie uh, Caswell, he's out of the room, but we can still give him a round of applause. Comments. One, two, I'll take about five and then I'll leave them. One, two, three, four. I put it here. I think everybody can hear without a mic, okay? Yeah. The mic's it's just making noise. Yeah. Thanks, that's better. Um, <coughs> the first? Yeah. Hi, uh, yeah, just uh, I imagine everyone's got an incredible sort of emotional response to what they've just seen and lots of questions about. You have to speak up, otherwise, we have to use mics. Sorry. Okay. Hello. I just wanted to ask, I was, I was just saying that I imagine everyone's got a lot of emotional responses to the film and a lot of questions about what it means in a broader sense uh, uh, about South Africa today. But I just wanted to start by asking a very practical question to Rahad. One of the most powerful parts of it was the fact that you were able to use that police footage, I mean, especially at the end when at the King Coffee Room you heard the police kind of congratulate themselves on their executions. I just wondered uh, how that, could you tell us a little bit about how that footage came out and how you obtained it and whether there was a struggle over that and yeah, how that all came together because I think it's a really interesting element. Sorry? Um, <clears throat> um, I'm, I'm really um, interested in, in, the, uh, in, the, in the invisibility of um, the London um, management. You had um, you, you you targeted specific people, politicians. You targeted uh, the event itself. You targeted the police. Um, and I was I was quite struck by the fact that uh, the people who are responsible or who hold the infrastructure for such a thing to happen are never actually called out. And I, I want to kind of get to um, maybe elaborate on that on the invisibility of, of London as a as a um, you know as a, as a as a company. Inside the film, inside the film, and in terms of the media, uh, the general media, because I think you know, so is like the, the, the figurehead and all that stuff. But I'm more interested in, in the powers behind, because I think Ronnie also pointed out uh, at, at yeah, the, the puppet masters, and, and that's what I'm interested in. Next question. Okay. Uh, now we know what happened uh, in Marikana. But now I'm left with so many questions why it happened. Uh, because, like, uh, firstly, we hear the police saying they were defending themselves from the mine workers. But I'm asking myself, uh, what were they defending themselves for? And um, I guess it was a case of uh, workers being pushed over to the edge. And the police uh, position was revenge. Because like what that journalist was saying, uh, that um, a photograph of a, uh, of a killed policeman was sent all over the shore. But what about the, the, the poor mine workers who was representing them? And then uh, 
so it was a police intentional execution because you cannot you cannot expect uh, four vehicles uh, from the mortuary you know so it was intended premeditated they really knew that they were going to kill some people and that's why they they did that and now like the last question that you posed at the end of the film who who really would uh, okay stand in for the rights or for the for the plight of the poor mine workers it's really a sad story now the the the, the same the the verse that goes say money is the root of all evil it's just the same because these guys just because the the mine the mine the, the mine owners have money uh, and the top political guys have money they were in a position to massacre these people the defenseless mine workers it's really a sad story and i don't know how you know Thanks. Um, won't you stand yes, yes. and speak loudly because I don't want to yeah, Thank you very much. <coughs> I would love to know from you, uh, the team of Marikana, when are you taking this film to the people? I want to see this film in Soweto. We have, this thing is a confirmation that Cyril Ramaphosa is a chief puppet. <laughs> this is a sign that a life of a black man is nothing. And ANC is escalating this. I'm very angry today that my people were killed like this and while our president is black. This is an insult. Then we call ourselves we have leaders like this. Come on, people. I want to see this film in Soweto. When are you taking it to the people? We want to know, we want our people to know. Now our people are thinking that it's Zuma who's giving them the grants. Our people are not educated. Please, people. I'm very happy. I'm honored. I'm coming from Soweto. My, my brother here invited me. I didn't know about this. I, I'm even late. I was late to come here. And I, I, feel, I feel this is an affirmation. This is a confirmation that Cyril Ramaphosa is a puppet. He is a puppet. And it's an insult for me to see people wearing the ANC t-shirt here. How do they feel? No, no, How do they feel? This is an insult. She doesn't have any words. We're going to hear some strong positions. We need to, with all due respect, let's try to, to respect that there are different points of view here. But what we have from Rihat just now is the film is being shown and we need your help to show it in Soweto, to show it everywhere. I'm not trying to quiet you, I'm just saying, let, let's, let's leave And I'm not complaining. You are. This is the truth. This is the truth. Just in order, let me take other comments. I want to leave other time. Um, yes. Ladies and gentlemen, I want to begin by saying sorry to the group here today. It's the first time the library has had a movie. Yes. And we apologize for starting late, but look, it's a learning lesson. We, we need to up our game in terms of our technology. But secondly, please, all of you, I would like us to respect the fact that the library offers us a space in which conversations of differing views are acceptable. We are in an academic environment where it's okay to disagree. So let's not, let's not make it hard for us to have such conversations going forward. We have 60 
such in the year. Today was our first one that we started late, and it's the first one in which our technology failed us. I'm apologizing, and I'm asking us to respect the fact that we offer this space on all four campuses for debate and discussion. Respond, but particularly the, the two of you. I think it'll respond to some of the concerns here, and then I'll move on to the next questions. Can you can you comment? Yeah, uh, the footage story was I managed to get hold and see what it contained. It was very difficult working with. There was a lot of gory footage. There was a lot more images which were very disturbing, which you wouldn't want to necessarily show uh, to people. We need, to we need to respect our dead, also respect the audience. Um, <coughs> one of the lawyers uh, just said, well, why don't you apply for commission? And commission was granted from the Commission of Inquiry because the, the footage had entered the public domain. And the footage was granted on the basis that I would get permission from the families to show the bodies in question, the, the, the footage. Uh, but the, I think the most important footage was the footage from one of the broadcasters which we released as a campaign in October of last year, which was showed quite clearly that the miners were leaving the mountain peacefully that contrary to the police statement and evidence that they led, that the mine workers, there was no evidence in that footage that the mine workers had attacked the police in, twice in the moments before they were shot at scene one, the shootings which we showed in the film. And that's helped tremendously the legal teams at the commission to try and turn the narrative around from one of self-defense to one of police ambush. The arguments we had to make with the broadcaster in question, because as, as you probably know, you know, broadcasters don't hand over evidence which could incriminate people or put their journalists at risk. And uh, while they had agreed formally with Judge Farland that they would hand over all the footage, they, it wasn't forthcoming. And so we had to make an argument that it was in the public interest, a higher interest, was at stake a higher principle of keeping the police and uh, the government, the people who control the police, accountable. The question of lobbying. Well, I tried as hard as I could. I made many requests to the old CEO, Ian Farmer, um, the acting CEO, Scott, and the new CEO, Ben McGarrett, as well as to other senior uh, managers at Longman to, to give us an interview, even the, the press officer. But as with most others, their response was, well, this is a commission of inquiry, 
and it's sub judiciary. It's not really sub judiciary because it's, it's not a court. There's not a court case going on. The Commission of Inquiry is there to ascertain the truth. So, but obviously people are worried about the legal implications. Any legal, uh, you know, legal kickback or uh, that could, could happen from an interview given. So genuinely they weren't given. Cyril Ramaphosa, I bent his arm. I, I've known him for a long time and I knew him back, back in the days in the, in the early 1990s. He knew my father uh, and one way or the other I managed to get him to come uh, on screen. And I think, you know, this, it's not the first time someone said to me, you know, the face of London, the face of white monopoly capital is missing in your film. And I thought about it, and I was thinking of putting Tiny Rollins in there. He's this famous uh, buccaneer capitalist, who the Tory Prime Minister in the UK called the unacceptable face of capitalism. His Lonmin is an offshoot of uh, Lon Rowe. Um, but you know, actually, when you look at these companies, the majority of their assets are in South Africa. In Longman's case, 90% of them. They have a couple of people in their London office. It's only British in name, or hold on, but half of its shareholders are British, and uh, about 30% of its 20, 25-30% of its shareholders are based in South Africa. The same with Anglo-American and uh, Impala. These companies have a very strong local shareholder. And the argument would go, well, actually, Sills are puppet. The real crooks are the, the corporations. And on one hand, yes. But, you know, I very much agree with what Ronnie said. The people, who, who's there to regulate them? Who's there to make sure these things don't happen? Who's there to make sure that they build houses? Lombin hasn't built a house in 10 years. Mm -hmm. You know, who's there to make sure there's a separation of these companies from our police force? At the end of the day, it's got to be the politicians. And we've got to, the only way we make sure that our politicians are accountable is if we keep them accountable. And the only way we can do that is we, if we, if we keep ourselves mobilized. There's a couple of other questions, and I'll leave them to, to other people, but just to say, we're here for you. We've done a couple of screenings in Soweto. We want to do more, many more. Uh, we want to carry on showing this film for as long as people want to watch it. But we're committed to that. In the last uh, 30 days, I think we've done about 40 screenings. Uh, we're getting tired. We'll keep on going. We'll have a little bit of a rest after the elections, a week or so. And uh, the Commission of Inquiry, the next Commission of Inquiry is the UJ Commission of Inquiry into the audio problems. <laughs> <laughs> I, heard, I heard a volunteer that we can show it on the Soweto uh, and offer, so that's great. Um, did you want to add? Yes. Uh, 
Because I too can translate for you if you prefer. Voila. My name is Zokala. My name is Zokala Makitwana. I will start by showing my appreciation and I want to thank you for all the respect you have given unto us. Even though we have nothing, if I can remove my t-shirt and show you, you will never be what you're going to see. Because we've also been searching for the truth because I've been shot nine times. And I was also accused of things that I did not do. But I knew that the truth one day would come out even while I was in hospital. I knew that. I went to the commission and I told them that not all the videos have been shown to the public yet. I'm very happy when the people are actually coming up. We're standing up for their mission. Because we are uneducated, we think that only black people can be victims, but white people can also be victims. Because the truth is also seen by Mr. Romney that what has happened to us is really something that was not supposed to be tolerated. How could rich people be one totally and we know that and do nothing about it? Because how far should come up and say some of the things that have done to us because we're scared. I'm saying that um, 15 events of policemen would come to a place and come to arrest you because of saying the truth, because we've spoken out the truth. But at the end of the day, the truth came out. Today, Will they still continue investigating and where will that stop? I know that as a person there's something I was told when I was praying up. He said as a person you need to be someone who's trustworthy. You know that every, everyone does make a mistake sometimes. But what happened to me is something I'll never forget until I die. Because, because it is the same way people are helping us today. Because people are laughing at us for not helping us. There's those white people that are helping us. I know that God created us black people in a very um, funny way. Because He painted us black. And He painted other people white. They think that they are our God. 
politics. So thanks very much. I'd also like to thank all of you for staying this long. Um, and I mean this with all sincerity, because uh, as you may know, there was a major rally yesterday addressed by number one, not number 200 or something. I hope I'm not putting you down there, or 200,000 or something, but number one. And by halfway through, half the audience had left. Now that's not the kind of occasion this is, because I can see that everybody is very concerned about what happened at Nottingham. I'm trying to understand. Can I just finish my comments here? I apologize for your sensitivity. I didn't realize that people were sensitive about the fact that people need meetings on occasion. I was trying to be humorous about this. Okay, so let me make the points I want to make, and that is that um, I think that it, I, I am rather concerned about this because this is a massacre. And let's call it a massacre because that's what it is. It's a massacre, and some people like to, to deny the fact it's a massacre. This is literally a massacre that we've had in South Africa. 34 people killed by the police force, and still nobody found guilty for those killings. Mm -hmm. This is a massacre that's occurred as a consequence of the use of firearms by the South African police force, as a consequence of a conspiracy that occurred the day before. Mm. The commissioners of all the provincial police forces, plus the South African commissioner, met together and decided the next day, on the 16th of August, there will be people killed, ordinary South African citizens, mine workers, workers, those people who produce the platinum that provides the wealth for South Africa's economy, that those people will be killed the next day. That's the reality. That's what this film shows. And we shouldn't hide from that, fact. That is the reality of what happened in South Africa. That's what happens, and it was a government behind that. This is yeah. not a matter of scoring points. This is the reality. There was a government that was involved in making that decision, pressing the buttons, and ensuring that that happened. That's the starting point. Now, the point that I want to make is that the struggle continues. This is not just something that happens on one particular day. This is a, a story about what happens the next day and the next day. And what happened the next day after the 16th is especially important. Because one of our researchers, Dr. Luke Sinwell, who's at the bank, interviewed workers who were present on the mountain and discovered that the following day, in fact, the next day, that evening and into the following day, about 30 mine workers met and they decided the struggle would continue. Now, I've read a lot of labor history over the years. It's my job to do so. And I can't think of a single example in the labor history of this world where I've seen such bravery. People whose friends have been killed, 34 of them killed. They didn't know how many at the time. They've been killed. They died. Others have been injured. Others have been arrested in large numbers. And yet some of them came together and decided that somehow they were going to continue the strike. Now, I was present around the mine at the, at the mountain at that time, and I knew how awful and appalling the violence was. You could see the large numbers of police, the large numbers of, arm, of, of the army, the remains of the killings, the bullets. We went and found, we were the first ones to find these letters on the wall, <coughs> A to N, where people had been killed. They'd been killed as murder. They'd been killed, they'd been surrounded, the police came in with their guns and they shot them one by one on that second killing site. And that's what happened. Despite that, these mine workers met together and they decided the struggle would continue. As the slogan goes, Aluta Continua. Yeah. That's what happened in Maracana. 
The struggle continued. Despite the massacre, despite the bloodshed, the struggle continued. That's what I want to talk about, because today that struggle is still continuing. And one of the links between what we've seen in this film and what we know is happening today in Marrakan and across the platinum belt is that workers are fighting for a decent living wage of 12,500 rand per month. 12,500 rand per month when they're in years, some of them are being paid 200 times that much. And this struggle, therefore, is not just simply a struggle about a living wage, it's a struggle against inequality. And most of us here talk about inequality and the way in which we dislike inequality in South Africa. Here we have an example of workers who are fighting to challenge that inequality. And I think it's something that's important for us to support. It's not just a struggle then for a living wage, and it's not just a struggle against inequality. In my view, it's now become a struggle for truth. Because what we hear from the media, and what we hear from the spokespersons of the mining companies, is that they cannot afford to pay this amount of money. That it's unreasonable for these workers to be demanding 12,500 rand a month, even though many of them are being paid 100, 200 times as much. It's unreasonable. It's going to ruin the economy. It's bad for us that people are trying to fight for this kind of amount of money. Now let's just look at the facts. Because one hears, even from number one, that these workers are beginning to create anarchy. That these workers should go back to work because they're ruining the economy, because they're being unreasonable. That they're not willing to make concessions. Now this is the reality. That the AMCU union has made a number of concessions to the employers over the period of the last 13, 14 weeks. To the situation now where their position is one of saying that we are willing for this pay rise to 12,500 Rand, we're willing for it to be introduced over a period of four years. Now the calculations that have been done by an economist from Cape Town, a man called Dr. Dick Forsland, is that if you look at how much this will mean in terms of the cost to company for Lonmin and for the other mining companies, the cost to company, if they pay this amount over four years to their AMCU membership, <coughs> remember many of the AMCU membership are paid more than four or five thousand rand a month. Some of them are paid eight, nine, some of them are even paid more than twelve thousand five hundred rand a month. So if you look at what this demand will mean for the companies, it works out like this. Slightly less than 20% in the first year. And by the time it comes to the fourth year, less than 10%. These pay increases are substantially less in percentage terms than the amount of money that is being paid, percentage increases, for CEOs in South Africa. They're pretty similar, in fact, to what's being paid to quite a lot of people in recent pay rounds. This said is not an unreasonable demand, even in percentage terms. Leave aside the whole question of justice, the issue of whether or not workers should be paid a decent wage. Even in terms of percentages, this is not an outrageous demand that's being made. <coughs> so we need to be clear about that when we read the newspapers and listen to the people who are speaking on behalf of the speaking on behalf of the companies. This is reasonable. And then we can set aside next to this the way in which over the period of the last year or so, the value of the rand has dropped by more than 30% against the dollar. Now this is significant because platinum is sold in dollars and workers are paid in rand. So this means that the companies are receiving 30% more now than they used to for their platinum, 
whilst at the same time the workers are being paid a lot less. If they're being paid at all, there's a strike going on. They haven't received anything over the period of the last 14 weeks. The companies are saving that money, and at the same time they're still able to sell their platinum. So they've been saving up this money. They can easily afford to pay this increase if they want to. And this then raises a question for us. Why don't they? Why don't they pay this money? And it's something which I think we should all consider. Why is it that they don't pay this? And I can offer only hypotheses. One hypothesis is that they simply want to make more money for themselves. Mm -hmm. If they're not paying money to the workers, they're keeping it as profits. They're benefiting from it. And one looks through the Longman record sheet and you can see how this has been happening over the years. People look at the amount of money that goes to shareholders. They look at the amount of money that goes to people that are opposed. This is significant. But what really is important is the amount of money that goes to what they call sustainable development, cash for sustainable development. They put it in their records. And if you compare the amount of money that goes to cash for sustainable development with the amount of money that workers got, I'm thinking of the 2011 balance sheet, there's as much money, almost as much money, going to cash for sustainable development. Now, what does this mean in real terms? It means money that's being invested in other countries so that the company can continue to make a profit. We hear this idea of foreign investors, and we get worried these people might run away. The money that goes to develop Longmin, the refinery, the career shafts, and so on, that's not coming from foreign investors. That comes internally from within Longmin. They can draw on their cash reserves in order to pay for those improvements. So it's not about foreign investors. We don't have to worry about that. All we have to worry about is the amount that Longmin as a company is expanding. Its shares are increasing in value as a consequence of the amount that's being taken away from workers. Now, workers never say, that's fine, take my money away. You know, if you live in, your, in a house anywhere and somebody comes along and says, I'm taking your car, I'm taking your TV set, you would call it theft. Now, here's a situation where the companies come along and they take things from the workers without asking. And in my view, that's a form of theft. That's what we have. These companies are thieving from South African workers and they've been doing this for decades and for centuries. Long been started operating. Longman started operating in South Africa at the beginning of the last century. For over a hundred years, they've been exploiting workers in South Africa. Every year, they take more and more in profits. And what workers want is just a little bit of that back, just a small amount of that back to them so they can have a decent living standard for themselves and for their families. And we have researchers working in Marikana, and women in Marikana, and the details of those stories are absolutely appalling. The way in which women have to live because uh, their husbands and boyfriends are having to support not just one family but two families and sometimes three families because that's the reality of the of the way in which people live in order that some people can become very wealthy now the, the last point that i want to make is that this strike is an historic strike um, and i don't think this penny has dropped yet um, as a labor historian one of the things i have to do is to kind of count things you know almost like an accountant how many here how many there one of the things i count is numbers of days lost through strike action. That's the main way in which labor historians count the scale of a strike. How many days have been lost through this strike? And this is now the single biggest strike in South African mining history. The biggest previously was in 1987, a famous miners' strike led by the National Union of Mine Workers. An important strike which affected the outcome of the struggle against apartheid. This is now bigger than that in terms of days lost through strike action. That was 4.5 million. This is now about 5 million days lost through strike action. And rather than simply saying, asserting wrongly, 
inaccurately, lying that this is something that the company can't pay for, that they are right in order to fight these workers, we should start saying, well, why is it that these workers are willing to stay on strike for 14 weeks? Willing to stay on strike despite enormous suffering. If you go to uh, areas like Madakana, particularly talk to the wives of the mine workers, they will tell you about the hunger that they're experiencing. The problems that they have with their school, their kids not being able to go to, to school. The heartache of all of this suffering that is going on. And there is immense suffering. You just have to go to Maragana and talk to people to understand the suffering. So why is it that people are prepared to strike for 14 weeks to create suffering for themselves, to create suffering from their for their children? And I would suggest that it's not just because people want to have a decent wage, it's also because they understand the injustice and the iniquity of the present system. The injustice that allows some people to be enormously wealthy. Enormously wealthy. And we see now that the CEOs in South Africa are the second highest paid CEOs in the world, despite the poverty. So people are not just fighting for a higher wage. They're fighting for a just society. They're fighting for fairness. They're fighting for truth. And they're fighting to understand that our world is not just it's not just about private gain, it's also about the benefits of the majority. And I think that's what this film shows, and it's what the continuing struggle of the mine workers shows as well. So I have my own little contribution to this pile of food here that's going to go to people uh, in Maracana on Saturday. It's only one tin of beans, but it does have an IOU on it. And the IOU says starch food, canned food, soup, tea bags and sugar, cooking oil, salt, sunlight, bar soaps, petroleum jelly, brackets, Vaseline, toothpaste, deodorants, and sanitary towels. And I hope that this is merely the start of contributions that were made by many, many people around this room, outside this room, and this will grow and make a contribution to ensuring that those men who died at Maracana will not simply not be forgotten, but that we will follow, we will follow them in continuing to fight for a decent wage, for justice and humanity. about the present situation, we're moving on toward what does this actually, where is this leading us, what does it mean? Um, it's painful for me to hear to hear arguments that are, and, and realities that are based on the gross inequity um, in the society, huge Gini coefficients, because it feels so powerless. And I, I think that your example of the greatest, the longest union provides some, um, Encouragement that there's, there's, we're not just powerless watching a Gini coefficient grow. Um, let's hear from you, Ronnie, uh, and then I hope we'll still have some time for some. Questions. I'll try and be a bit shorter. Like Peter here, I'm going to stand up so I can see who's here, <laughs> see me better. But I just wanted to say, as a preliminary, a couple of things about the film and how important it is for all of us. Um, I became involved with the ANC in Ocanto Sizwe, Communist Party of South Africa, um, in 1960. MK was created the following year. And it was really because of something called the Sharpville Massacre. And the Sharpville Massacre represents arguably the biggest stain, the biggest crime of the whole apartheid era. I'm sure everybody knows this about Sharpville. And here, as someone who's actually been a government minister, I've been 
so absolutely shocked and angered um, at the time of the massacre, the immediate day we saw the carnage on our TV screens and what emerged actually quite quickly, we didn't even need to have a commission of inquiry because we had heroic journalists like Greg Maranovic who appears in the film and is one of the principal people that Rehart has and he's fantastic, these miners who gave their blood, who have come away injured for a decent wage. And what struck me was how much worse this Marikana massacre actually is compared to that dreadful crime of Amabunu in 1960, March the 21st. The Bura Amapoyes, they were brainwashed, their minds were filled, Medisvat Khafar. So any time as a policeman or a soldier, if black people came and protested, they didn't need to have any premeditation, as happened at Sharpville. There they were in the police station, the crowds protesting outside very peacefully, one or two thrown, stones were thrown, and these guys, programmed as they were, just opened fire. There was no premeditation. And when the firing stopped, and the 68 bodies and the injured were lying there, people were allowed to administer to the injured and give them water and coolie and medical aid. The injured weren't lying there for hours on end under the hot African sun, dying and struggling, like we see in this film, where that one man, in I think he had red clothing, is actually trying to get up, and he collapses and he struggles up, and there are our police, not even moving in pity. But we see clearly from what Rehard has put together, the premeditation, not just this knee-jerk reaction of police because of black strikers or protesters and they pull the, the triggers, but premeditation for murder most foul, which we see what it was like in front of our eyes here, how well the film depicts it, and then secondly, my daughter, Makabani, ladies and gentlemen, secondly, what you didn't have at Sharpville, they didn't then follow injured people, as bad as those Buddha police were, to execute them. Wounded people running away. Ghastly, ghastly, foul crime that we can't sit back and smile. We can't sit back and say, well, the responsibility is from both sides. This happens when people confront each other. Do you remember the cacophony that we heard from my comrades in government now from Amar? People saying, don't point fingers from the president to reappear there. Um, but saying that, well, these miners had been smoking dacha, they'd been taking muti, they felt they were invincible, 
They were at loggerheads with the NUM. Uh, they charged the police. Remember that. The miners charged the police. And the police, with their guns, modern weapons, as at Blood River in 1838, against people with sharpened instruments, just opened fire, even if those miners were actually charging them. When you've got guns against sticks and spears, you just mow people down. But in actual fact, we can see from the way Rihad has managed to find this footage and put it together that they drove these guys, his comrades including himself, to the death line where the police were waiting to mow them down like rabbits. That's what we see. That's why we must always be angry about this and not go to sleep because a commission of inquiry, it's a judge, it's all these legal people, they will sort out what actually happened. Yes, we will get a verdict, but do you really need to wait like that without really knowing the truth of how the police are shooting people down? Like Andres Tatani, we saw him being murdered yeah. on our television screens. We've seen other people murdered by the police. The Mozambican taxi driver dragged to his death. Beckersdahl, the, the, the farm workers in Paul and the Durham's and Car, who were shot because they were protesting for 150 rand instead of the miserly 60, 70 rand that the farmers pay them. And there was the mine owners and the police and the ANC government and my communist party, Jeremy Cronin and Bladen Zimandi, all telling us that those miners, these guys, were attacking the police and the police operated in self-defense. Who is going to believe that? And let me tell you, let me ask any reasonable human being that when the police act in the way you've seen, all that mobilization, the organization, the bringing in of the armored vehicles, the razor wire, the reinforcements, the horsemen, the mortuary vans and the like. Who here seriously believes that that commissioner of police was not going to talk with the minister of police and with the cabinet security ministers and with the man you call number here the president, Guanam Kuba, as they would say in East Africa. Do we really believe that the police in any country really, unless it's an absolute police state and the president's a puppet of the police, maybe one day that will be happening in this country. But the police will not dare do something like this, as though it's simply grabbing someone from Malawi down the road here in Houghton, out of the car late at night, saying, you smell of liquor, and take them to some back room and beat them up. 
They don't have to go to the president for that, or the minister of police, or the commissioner. But for this, don't kid yourselves. They have to have had a good old nod to say, do your duty. Slander, teach them a lesson. Why is it that we have a democratic government which we've elected to power that allows something like this to happen? Shouldn't we be asking the question? Shouldn't we be concerned about the workers of our country? Anyone here prepared to go down like he does and work down, down in the mines at the rock face for six, seven thousand rand? Who would even do it for 12,500? Come on. That's what keeps the wealth of this country going. We all benefit. A university like this doesn't stand here and provide you with the ability to learn without benefiting from this capitalist machine in this country. It's the kind of questions that if we're serious about our country, if we love our country, if we're concerned about our workers, if we're going to say no more of this kind of murder, that we have to ask these things. And if it means that we have to protest, like a Trevor Guani from early, early days of this democracy, and I was a minister of water, and I thought I was doing good things, Trevor. And they were saying it wasn't good enough, and they were marching. And you know there's a man called Chris Harney, who you all know was assassinated some years back. And we need to recall that when Chris Harney became the Secretary General of the Communist Party of South Africa, when I think it still had a noble image, that he said, this is December 1991, and Chris said, if a government, democratic government of our country fails to deliver a better life for our people, then that democracy is meaningless. He went on to say that I will work and mobilize Yabantu, Jikanele Kaya, South Africa. I'll mobilize the people for an ANC victory in an election. But if they do not deliver, if they fail us, I will lead a march in protest against that government. And then he laughed, because Chris had a fantastic sense of humor. He was also a little embarrassed when we were looking at him, aghast that he would lead a march against a future ANC government. And he says, Oh well, of course, they're not like this current bunch, the apartheid government. He says, they'll be our government and people's government. So they won't fire tear gas at us and they won't shoot at us. This is what the reality is now. How do you think Chris Arne would have reacted? So if we move on and you have some questions, I just want to then say that what we've got to realize that this Marikana is the turning point, the turning point in our history.
we have had a national liberation struggling overthrew apartheid white domination. We can have black minister, black president, black chief of police and all these things. Black billionaire in London mining, London. And actually the huge profits do go abroad to make very few people, the 1% of the world, very wealthy and the same small group here. But what we've seen from Marikana is the illumination for us of a class struggle in this country. If we want to get to understand our country now and move out of the great and noble struggle against apartheid, whatever my anger and disappointment is where we are today, I'm 76 now, I feel my life was well spent because I helped to overthrow that white domination and everybody could get a vote. And we did away with that racism in the political sphere, but not in the social and not in the economic sphere. Mm -hmm. And that's what our struggle's been about as well. We didn't just say we haven't struggled to have a black president and a new flag and an anthem that we can all sing together. We said we have a freedom charter and we would change the economy of this country and we would create greater social opportunity and equity for our people and not have miners being shot down because they're demanding a decent wage. Whilst, as, as Peter's pointed out, we have the CEOs in this country who earn an average 50 million, 50 million is the average every year and the miners are struggling on four or five thousand a month to get even that and their bodies will be broken like miners have had their lives and their bodies broken for 140 years in this country since we discovered diamonds and 120 since we discovered gold and so many more times in the years ahead while they mine the mineral wealth that must really go to help the people of this country and the miners in the first place, but to help us all grow our economy and have the funds and the wealth to make our lives better for everybody, not just a 1% of the corporate business, the Viramaposas, the Anton Ruperts and the like here and the ones abroad. So that's it, Trevor. I'm saying that Marakani has illuminated for us this issue that is the class issue and this is why as we come into an election now in a few days time and the election is simply a stepping stone in the near future for us I'm certainly voting I didn't say spoil the ballots in the first place I'm saying don't stay away go and vote Use your vote. We struggled for it. Chris Hani and others gave their blood for it. And we're saying this time we will withhold our vote from the ANC. It doesn't deserve it. It'll stay in power. It'll get 60, 62, whatever. But if it comes down 3%, it's a slap in the face for people who have become so arrogant with greed and power that they need to be taken down the steps. Step or two, quite frankly. And if we can at least signal that and if we can bring into parliament people who are going to raise issues of the freedom charter and i'm not just talking about green berries they certainly a party that raised that flag 
So listen to them. There's the WASP, the Workers and Socialist Party. There's someone like Bantu Hulamisa, who I think is a genuine person, by the way. But all we're saying is use your vote, think about it, let's bring into Parliament people. I mean, Trevor, if you were standing, I'd love to see you in Parliament. People who can confront power. And it doesn't matter, we're not talking about having to bring in a party there that's going to win power. The ANC's there for some time. But let's work towards the the local elections in, in 2016 and the election in 2019. And we see on the horizon, together with movement like EFF, we see together with other leftist groups, we see NUMSA, the biggest union in our country. And we see the talk about the creation going into the future of a left movement, a left party, that can begin in numbers and in strength and power to challenge the situation that we have where unfortunately, really unfortunately, the ANC as we see at Marakana has moved, as we were hoping it would go left, is moved really to the right and why it allowed the police, the arm of state, to defend the property and the interests of London is because that party is coming to represent that particular class. And this is what I'm saying here today, looking into the future, is the way we need to begin to reassess what kind of a country this is and the kind of future. And it doesn't mean that we're going to see the red flag triumphant. In fact, my last point, uh, Chair, is that the people who have got the political power now and are feathering their nests have a huge amount to lose. And when you've got a huge amount to lose, you'll use the police as at Maragana. You'll use the secret police to come for the people in red berets, or the big mouths they'll call the Trevor and myself to drag us away and to shut down any, any real challenge unless we can build a movement here of civil society, of the trade unions, of the working class, of a socialist movement that says to them, don't you dare. And this is what's required in the coming period of time. Thank you. And actually when we add, one of the first people they will drag away, if we're not careful and don't protect them, would be filmmakers like Riyadh's son. Well, there are a lot of questions. I was going to, I was going to say that I think that we should call that the ending of our session. All these questions. But can I please, um, the people who need to leave, we'll let them be excused now. I see some people gesturing they need to leave, and then with all encouragement, we have an interested uh, group here. How much longer can we go on?
Just one round. Okay. I'll take five questions and, and please back to um, comrades back to order. I don't want complete chaos in this room, otherwise we're not going to be able to use the venue again from the library. Um, one very eager, two in the back also in blue, um, three here, four in the jean jacket. Okay, no, I'll cover that. And five. Please keep your questions short, or comments short. Um, and um, I will continue. Who is number one? Yes. Please smile. Uh, I could have done more. Good evening, everyone. My question is very clear to, to Ronnie. You were there when, when the economy was privatized. You were there, Ronnie. When, when, when the, 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 the Reserve Bank was, was, was privatized, you were there. And again, on top of that, you see that in, in the world economy, now people are talking about saying, in South Africa, we are dealing with target inflation. But in the other countries, now we are dealing with unemployment inflation. Then now you can see South Africa, we are moving that direction. In South Africa, we go in that direction. Another question to Europe. Based on, on the economic failure, in the economic system, in 1996, you were in the class act that you were called class act of Kia. The one that prevails the whole situation today. Ronnie, what did you what did you do in that particular situation? To prove one thing for sure, we don't have social compact in South Africa. We've got a serious issue to deal with. And what I see, we've got a it's not over, it's, it's a class issue, yes, I understand, but we've got a problem where can you find that we've got our, our white brothers, they don't like involved. They want they are afraid to be blamed, they are afraid to be punished that you are racist. If you raise up your voice, you don't have a voice that just because you're white. So how can we let our black brothers, our white brothers to get involved on the struggle of saying equality? Thanks. Thank you. Uh, just as a would be able to like direct a message to my brother It's a message to him. Uh, it, you know, it saddens me that um, our leadership, uh, in fact, President here, uh, Mr. Roy, has taken a stance of complacency. And what we do appreciate, however, is that uh, you are here saying that the malevolence shown against our people cannot be tolerated. But I worry, and my worry, you know, is aroused by the fact that could it be that uh, our people are, are being puppeted as a dagger that is directed to the ANC moving right forward? One other thing that I want to mention is that you were there, you know, in the times of the arms deal. And it's quite fortunate that you are here because maybe the people that failed to, to, to seek fault in you might assist, in effect, you might assist in actually showing us how can they find fault in, in, in the people that uh, shot down our brothers. Thank you. My name is Philip. I just wanted to put a point across uh, a point. Uh, remember when uh, Jacob Zuma said that the use of intelligence 
but the president to actually silence the voices of the people within the ANC. I remember them were the Minister of Intelligence. So I think on that one we also touch the use of this intelligence to actually attack our people and how we not dependent on integrity. Particularly on the issue of the issue of the country's government trying to deliver justice. I, I think there was an issue in, in Margarita in Portugal. I've seen that they were now the two rival unions trying to actually actually there was a brewing war or, or, or that that they were they were shooting each other and whatnot. In such a, in such a situation, what does the state have? Uh, 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 what is the role of the state in terms of making sure that it's justice and that justice doesn't triumph over human rights? And actually, and actually, I'm also trying to say, you know, look. The, the beneficiation of, of leaders from your own core, particularly uh, uh, union leaders that are leading these unions and are, are direct beneficiaries of, of, of riches or, or, or money that are contributed by the poor of the poorest. That was saying that, as the government's part, these contradictions must be been. In fact, was saying that workers must get what they deserve. And I, I'm for a view that workers must be paid what they deserve, particularly in our country. And I'm saying that. The segregation of duties, particularly by the political, by the political uh, heads and, and, and your governments, must come into play. You know, look There must be stress distinction of, of, of what should happen with the justice. And you cannot blame that to the ANC. That we are also members of the ANC, but we are not delivering or, or whatever better we are doing must not be entered with the ANC. I think people must take responsibility. And I'm, I'm with you that those people who were responsible for the last particularly those ones on the ground. When you say that you must kick the door until the owner comes out. But that must happen. That must happen. And I agree with you. But the issue of Marikana must be that how do we assist our people in this regard? Our people who lost their husbands, the breadwinners, are still suffering now, despite us playing all these political things that we are playing. But you are saying that our people, how do we assist them moving forward? Not this political game, who must vote for what The current state must take responsibility. How do we assist our people? We must, we must not forget that the very same government, the very same state that is still in charge now, it is the one that must assist our people. Uh, thank you, thank you. 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 I have one here and one here, and I'm going to get a word into it. Cover your question. Thank you. Uh, I think, firstly, I'd like to actually join the voices that are condemning the police actions in Marikana, and not just in Marikana, but across South Africa, where we have seen the likes of Andrew Stadani being killed, uh, the Mozambican taxi driver being killed, and um, an institution like police, the police that we're supposed to be trusting as South Africans, we now have tend to fear. And I think it's not a secret that there is inequalities in South Africa. In fact, this is the most unequal society in the world. And workers must have the right to protest for, for, for a fair social change, things like that. But now, the question remains, in protesting for, for, for a living wage or for better living conditions, do we now ignore the rule of law to undermine because to be quite honest, I think we're all watching the, the, the plighting of minor shutdown. One, one, one protest leader said that we marched to the NAM offices and armed. Funny enough, immediately, a clip was shown. Everybody was armed. 
and you had about this. Not the worst. There's currently a strike going on in the recent National Guard. People's houses are being banned. People are being intimidated. That's undermining the rule of law from my perspective. Okay. Do we now have this struggle by undermining the rule of law? Thank okay, you. thank you. Yeah. I don't know if questions are transferable. No, no, Can you keep it very short? Yeah. He was covered, so that's why. He was covered, so then, <laughs> then, then we are done with that question. Yeah, yeah, we're done with his question. Yeah, yeah. Is it transferable? <laughs> Two seconds. Okay, now I'm just going to ask, um, um, to anybody on the panel, um, I'm a student of politics, and I really, I'm very um, <coughs> shocked at how, as black people, we can do that to fellow black people, mm -hmm. and we don't actually want to make noise about it. Yes. In the way that um, the former minister was, was speaking now. But in that commission of Marakana, I don't hear any of those being called for to actually ask them to speak out. Yes, it was an instruction, it came from the top, we, we granted. But does anybody know if any of that, of calling them to actually come and explain their side of the story, given what what they know, the they did, yeah. the police? Um, yeah, so I'm gonna stop there because okay. you're skipping your time. I'm going to take advantage of my position as chair and get a very quick question in myself because I didn't actually get, I was meant to have speaking time and I took my own. Um, Carlin Holtz just written an article that's gotten a lot of attention on violent democracy. The concept that democracy and violence are not necessarily two different things contradictory to each other, but it's a new form that we're seeing particularly in South Africa. Um, and, and he goes into some description. My question is, you've all described it as class struggle. You've all described it as due to the huge inequality in this country. You can argue that's a sort of an economic determinist point of view, that that's just the way it's gonna be. You can look at Volpe's primitive accumulation and say this is where we are with capitalism. This isn't painting a good picture of where we are. This isn't telling a story. There's not Amer another Americana. This is telling a story from what I am reading through the lines of, we might get lots more Americanas if we're really gonna stand up like you say, Ronnie, and challenge things in a fundamental way to move on. And so, um, I didn't mean it as a leading question, but that's sort of the, the gist of what uh, what I wanted you to comment on. So let me let me take, Peter has to be first because he has a very quick response. Yeah, I've got nothing Sorry. to say. He's the two stars, I'm here all the time. Um, I don't really know the answer to the white question. Um, I think it's important to look at unemployment figures for, for today. And unemployment amongst white people is negligible. Unemployment amongst black people is very, very high. White people have done very, very well out of the end of apartheid. Black people haven't done very well out of the end of apartheid. So it's not surprising to me if most white people are willing to go along with things. But of course, as a minority, there's always been a, a magnificent minority of white people who've challenged uh, the hegemony of racist ideas, who've battled against it. Uh, but it's not a very big minority. What always surprises me is that when we have a film like Green Arts, one of the things he worries about is that too many of the good guys are white. Because in the real world, there's not that many good guys who are white. Uh, and there's not enough black good guys appearing in the film, except for the mine workers themselves, who you know, often are not representing themselves in terms of their aspirations and views and so on. So I, you know, I'm very grateful to people that they allow someone like me to speak on a platform where there's three whites out of six people. 
I think it's very, um, you know, it's, I think it's a, it's a great thing about South Africa that people, most people, are not racially prejudiced at all, and they judge you upon what you say rather than upon what you look like. So I'm very proud to be here, very uh, pleased to be identifying with an audience that's watching this wonderful film about Marikana. Yes. That's very good. I think, you know, analysis. I, we could say, and I believe, that the ANC has largely been captured by a victim of its own policy, the Black Economic Empowerment Policy. Giuseppe, Sequale, Ramaphosa, and a handful of other people have clustered themselves around President Zuma and a very, and the most important cabal. I could then go on and say the South African Communist Party provide the chief justification, ideological justification for that system of deepened capitalism, a, a, a more capitalist dictatorship uh, pushing into our system. I could go on and on about where about various points of view, okay? But whether you're in the ANC or whether you're in the Communist Party, after you've seen this film, I want to ask you, do you believe the police should be prosecuted? Do you think they should go to court? And do you think the murder charges against this comrade and 269 people like him should be dropped? I want to ask you, Yes. Do you support the demand for 12,500 of the mine workers? Yes. Yes. Because yes. yes. that is our unity. And that's where we stand. We stand and we have a strong tradition of resistance in this country. Yes. And whether you're in the ANC, in the South African Communist Party, we have to stand up against injustice when it occurs. Actually, most of the people I know and I associate myself with are still in the ANC. I'm getting many friends from the EFF these days. And I will probably vote EFF. But, but, we are two days away from the election. Okay? We have another five years ahead of us. Another 10, 15 years. We, I have come to this university and given my time to you because you are the future. Yes. You have put it in your hands and you have to make, you have to decide when the struggles erupt, where you stand, comrades. Regardless of whether you're in the ANC, South African Communist Party, UDM, EFF and so on. We will see where the EFF stands in the coming struggles. We will see where the UGA students, SASCO, comes in the coming struggles. You stand on the basis of truth and integrity of yourself as a comrade, as an activist, first and foremost. You don't pay your allegiance to some god above you, your political leaders. You pay your allegiance to yourself, to your internal truth, to your integrity. And that's what's going to take this, this country forward and nothing else, comrades. Nothing else. Thank you.
right before the elections, we promised the library we weren't having a political showdown. Um, it's a bit unavoidable, but if, sorry, but if I, if I could just beg for your, uh, your attention with that, we need to wrap up soon. I'm going to give, um, we're holding these comments in advance. People have the right to answer the question with a political answer. I've intervened now. I want to give Ronnie a chance, and then we're going to wrap I just up. wanted to ask, you, just ask them to answer the questions as well. Yeah, if you could answer the I'll questions. I'll try answer the questions as well. Um, right. Right. Okay. That's a good idea. Well, there were quite a few questions put to me. <laughs> You're waiting for the answer. I'll be very quick. Um, where was Ronnie at the time of the arms deal? the time of AIDS, at the time of gear. What was Ronnie doing in intelligence? Sure, ask those questions. And if Ronnie was doing the very bad things, are you then saying I've got no right to speak and be critical now? Is that your idea of democracy? Well, I'm afraid, you know, you would actually ban so many people from opening their mouths. <laughs> I don't think guilty. I want to just also demonstrate that they are so selective, people like this guy there in the blue. He's just like Witty Mantash and the others. They don't ask Van Skulpberg, the former minister, the former head of the National Party. Do you ask him? Where was he and what was he saying? He's a tourist minister of the ANC government. The ANC are all coming back, all the coke people. All the things that they say. You I am listening now, and I'm trying to be clear. So, you see, it's a very collective thing. But I was there in a government of Mandela that wanted us to buy arms, so that we would have a modern defense force. And yes, I was in favor of that, and I still defend that today. I wasn't involved in any corruption. Did I keep my mouth shut over AIDS? Yes, I did, and I regret it. But when you're in a government, you follow, if you want to remain in a cabinet, and by then I was from defense to water, I thought that I would focus on delivering water to the people, and I kept my head down, I kept quiet on some of those issues. Not very good. It doesn't mean I've got no right to speak, because in fact, the experience I have, I think people are very interested to hear what it is about being in government and where we went wrong. And we went wrong precisely in the economic arena, precisely over the gear thing. And I did question Madiba when he came back from Davos and he told us we're moving away from the Freedom Charter. There were only two of us who raised our voices, Paolo Jordan and myself, and we got crushed by that old man. And I'll tell you, you've got to be very brave and you've got to be very important, which I wasn't, to be able to say, Madiba, I corner and try and argue, because Madiba just says, no, 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 young man, just sit down, I'm telling you. That's something about government, my friend. And you're there and you think we have touched your freedom. We were doing our best to try and develop the country and we believe that we were. And I think from Mandela to Mbeki, we did a tremendous amount. And that's really 
what that's all about. And I'll tell you the big difference about Mbeki and about Mandela compared to now and the number one is whatever you want to accuse Mbeki of or Mandela, whatever you want to accuse them of and they have fallibility in politics, you can take you can take political judgments and make mistakes. But they never took Trevor, whatever, and you were a critic of them, and you had every right to criticize and challenge the political judgment, the move to privatization, all those things you raised. But could have you ever pointed at either of them as you can at the man who's building a palace in Kantla and who's so thick with the Guptas that he lets them land as a national airport, eh? They never took that. I'm not finished. They never took 